Do you fear the zombie uprising? Are you prepared to survive what's coming? If you listen very carefully, you might just make it out alive. This is Zompocalypse Now. I can fuck all the dudes I want. I ain't never gonna have a baby come out of that. Lesbians can have sex with all the women they want. I ain't never gonna have a baby out of that. So, that's number one. Population control. Fun sex. <laughs> number two, some people have a biological urge or need to have and care for children. I always wanted to have a family. Number two is here I am, a person who does not have procreative sex, who wants to care and love for children, and here are people who, for whatever reason, are unable to care for their children. And so now I, as a non-procreating member of the tribe, am caring for the children of procreating members of the tribe who could not support those children for whatever reason. I think it's important not to not to uh, get all judgy about whatever reason the whatever reason is. Right. But anyway, that's the theory. And unfortunately for Lovecraft Country, Marcel did not fulfill his biological obligations and produced um, a child that he's just going to treat like bullcrap. Yeah. This week, I, I don't do this part. Tim, will you do this part? Well, let me try it. Montrose made a mistake, a biological mistake, and now everybody paying for it, especially Atticus. Well, let me try it. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Zompocalypse Now. I'm not necessarily your host, but I'm here with your hosts. There's Tim and Dustin and Curtis. And which just ones pick, are you? Which, whichever, one, whichever one we are is the one we are. That one that was just talking was Dustin. Hi, though. Tim, I you should say something, too. I think you definitely qualify as a as a host on this show. There are hosts, like a host, like a host, like a host. Sure, glad I got to do the title. Should I talk? Wait, do I wait to talk about our our Twitter accounts? Yeah, that's at the end. <laughs> that's at the end. You can do that. Good. I mean, you can well, do I, it now. I, that's the one I'm bad at. Stay tuned for that. <laughs> uh, yes, folks, this is Apocalypse Now, and you've been listening to the word stylings of Curtis Smith. <laughs> I'm going to play guitar next week. Woo! <laughs> I'm going to not do none of that. And that, of course, is Dustin A. Dare, and I am Timothy Harvey, and this is the show What We Do, uh, dealing with things of horror on TV and film, books, and audio. And uh, we are talking about Lovecraft Country. Don't worry. For those of you who are fans of our zombie side of things, The Walking Dead is coming back. And And we have so much to talk about. We do. And when we get back into that, we can talk about the show coming to an end. We can talk about the spinoffs. We can talk about uh, all the different things that are involved with The Walking Dead. But we're not going to do that tonight. I'll tell you what. Anybody who wants to... Any of our fans, especially people who who don't know me or you or 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 you, I'll tell you what. You can call me at eight one six five zero seven nine four four one and chat to me about why you like the show. Ooh, that's interesting. It's a bold move, sir. He just gave out his telephone number and told people to call him. If you're a listener of this program, I want to get to know you. Well, there you go. That's I don't. Uh, I just want to uh, contact Tim or contact Curtis. That'll be fine with me. 
<laughs> you can Justin find me on. We Justin can talk on Twitter want if you to want. Know you. <laughs> I hope I got the right number. I've had so many phones. You know, you can shade change from number to. You can keep your number as you move from phone to phone, right? I don't do that. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because the people that you have in your contacts are not always people that you want to keep in your contacts. Uh, so when you say, hey, this is my phone number, shoot me a text if you want to stay on my thing. I got like maybe 30 people in my call list. That's down from like 900 two years ago. Uh, yeah. Right. And it's just people that I care about now. And I don't have to. Yeah, it's all and the funny thing, like every time I switch over phones, I don't know. I guess this might be a Verizon thing, but every time I switch over phones, all of the contacts that I've ever deleted come back. So I have to go through and delete like Mike Ducey again. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, oh, poor Mike. Yeah. Oh, he shouldn't have been so angry all the time. We and my my fingers hover right now. My fingers hover. Over over his name for just a moment, and then I'm like, nah. Gosh, I wonder what Mike's doing. <laughs> Back to what in tonight's episode? Lovecraft Country, episode five of Lovecraft Country, and this is a big one for me. There's a lot of stuff happens in this. Oh one. my god, a lot of emotional stuff. I was sucked so far into this movie, I nearly, I nearly joined what's his name in the club at the end. <laughs> Dancing? Yeah, that's how far I was sucked into the movie. I also have opinions and feelings. Yeah. There's a a lot to talk about with this episode. So the name of this episode is called Strange Case, and it is like the other episodes of this season so far. It is based to some degree on a chapter from the novel Lovecraft Country. Um, This diverges considerably from that section. We're not going to dwell too much on the differences between the book and the TV show. We can talk about that later when, when we get through all the episodes. I think it'd be kind of fun to, to talk about some of the differences, but this is very much its own thing, which is perfectly fine. And it kind of opens up not quite where you would expect this show to open up with some nope. brand new lady lying in a bed going, what the hell <laughs> she's had a lovely night night's sleep but then she wakes up and she looks in the mirror and she freaks out because this lovely white lady is actually was not a lovely white lady when she went to bed this is something strange and untoward has happened to Sally. <laughs> to Ruby. Something weird has happened to Ruby. She doesn't get it. Because she was a black lady when she went to bed. Oh, she freaks right out. Yeah. Oh, this episode is so good starting from this moment. Just the first it's, It is. It's extremely interesting because she kind of goes like running out into the street in her robe and people treat her differently. They like seem so concerned for her. Somehow she ends back out on the south side again and is trying to like convince people who she is. She's telling people she's very big and they're like, what are you talking about? And uh, she bumps into a, a, a boy, probably 12 or 13 year old boy. And that's when the police show up, and they attack this child. Oh, oh yeah. What do you do to this white woman? 
Yeah, like it's it's very frightening to watch, and everyone on the screen, every other character except for the two white police officers, are terrified. They're just like, "Oh shit!" And it, but it takes Ruby a minute to realize that they are trying to protect her in that super racist way that that cops in the fifties had of protecting white ladies. What is the what is the name of the the um, actor playing Ruby's white uh, alter ego thing? Any idea? Stand by. It was Hillary, right? I think so. Uh, I just looked at it. Jamie Newman, N E U M A N N. Well, she deserves to have her name mentioned because her performance was so incredibly subtle and real. Yeah. And I have no idea how she pulled that off. It was so good. And that lady deserves, like, if if there's, like, I don't know, I know we just had the Emmys, but if they have, like, person who is in one episode and just rocked it award, it, it should, it should <laughs> be well, according according to the IMDb, she's in for four episodes. The police take Ruby back to William. The blonde guy who's been floating around doing Christina Braithwaite's bidding over the whole course of this show so far. Oh, yeah, the chauffeur and the, the chauffeur. And he, like, helps that, you know, he's helped them in different, our main characters in different times and seducing, different, just seducing the crap out of Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. Starts getting sick. And the next thing you know, the white lady skin rips off, and underneath is Sally again. Well, this whole scene, she's she's the cops have basically said, "Oh yeah, we're taking you back to your husband." And she's like, "I don't have a husband." He's like, "Yes, yes, we know, dear. Everything's going to be fine." Crazy hysterical woman, and she realizes she's getting taken back to the house, and she does not want to go. And then her body starts contorting, and William just picks her up and carries her inside the house. And lays her on plastic, which is always a good sign. And she's thrashing around and just in agony. And he's just calmly moving around the room, doing things, straightening yeah. this and moving that. And she's just like, what are you, what is happening? Kind of pulling, didn't he like, I think I one or more points, he like grabbed her by the ankle and pulled her back onto the plastic. Oh, yeah. and she's, like- she's clawing to get away. And he's like, starts talking about caterpillars and butterflies. And she's just like. Uh, and then he pulls out a giant knife and pins her down and stabs into her and basically helps peel Ruby out of this exploding bloody white woman. Right. This was the moment where I started trying to figure out the physics of this transformation. This uh... No, you can't do that. It's magic. It wasn't like I ran into brick wall after brick wall. I was like, oh, okay. So it's kind of like there's two things existing in the same space and only one thing can exist there. So the thing that's inside has to come out and we do this all the Mm -hmm. time. Although, however, I do not know why when she takes the magic, when the magic happens, she doesn't explode with bloody flesh that way too. Well, what? Well, okay. we never see, we never get to see her transformation from R- Ruby to Hillary. We only see Hillary to Ruby. Mm-hmm. So who knows? I mean, it, they never say how she does it. It might be that she might r- rip her whole body apart. The implication, because of the way that 
Sorry, Tim, go ahead. I was like, the implication is that that doesn't happen, but there's some questions that get raised about this bloody transformation that run into a couple of narrative problems with the story we can talk about later. But there's, mm-hmm. for all the part that I really, really enjoyed this episode, there are several plot holes and logic things that I ran into as we're watching, and they mostly involve the transformation or when the, when the, when the potion is wearing off. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's some very public moments where basically a person covered in blood and viscera in it's the city, floating around the city, yeah. Is, yeah, is in an elevator or in a, on a city street. And these things that are just like, but wait. <laughs> it's like a certain film we talked about not too long ago where a character uh, is covered in gore and runs across the neighborhood to his girlfriend's house or his friend's house and no one seems to have noticed the teenager covered in blood from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Right. Uh, you know, yes. there's, a few, there's a few moments like that in this episode. We can talk about those. Yeah. It's, it's a really impressive scene, and it's really disturbing. The sound recording in horror is really, really important. And if you ever just, like, listen to... Just walk away, turn your back to the screen and listen to sequences from The Thing. Very, <laughs> very body horror. Um, and then the, the sounds behind you are very disturbing. And this episode, all the body transformation scenes, the audio is really creepy. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. the sound quality and, and what's Watch happening. It. You don't Look. even need the visual to sit there and go, well, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> that's not Lots a sound of, people should make. Lots of celery crunching and oh, pe- yeah. people punching piles of mayonnaise. and. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> Good stuff. Absolutely great. And of course, she'd like an explanation, please. <laughs> and he's his explanation is basically just it's magic. I did some magic at you and now you got some magic. But it's I don't just, want this magic. And he's like, Ah yeah, you do. <laughs> we both know you do. Uh, and and she does because she does not he he gives her the opportunity to leave and never have to deal with turning into this white lady again. But she doesn't. She uses the concoction to become uh, Hillary. She names herself Hillary. She goes and applies for that job at that uh, place that she wanted to work. I didn't necessarily understand that. Why not? So, I guess I, I did, but I was a little bit like, wait, you're, you're going to hold on to the same dreams that you had before? The way I read it was the way she talked about it before like about how she was going to apply to this place, made it sound like part of the cause. Like, I'm going to go apply, and I'm going to be so prepared and such a good candidate for this job, they can't not hire me. Part of it was, and it's easy to miss, but the she was also wanting to be the first black yeah. employee there. And so when this other girl was hired, when we saw her run into her last previous episode, she was to some degree, really, really wounded her yeah. because this is what she wanted to do. And I think by her going and applying for this job in this episode, we find it wasn't just that she wanted to be the first black woman working there. She really wanted that job. Like she wanted to be a part of this place. Oh yeah. I I would agree with that too. So she gets hired, not as a sales girl, but as the floor manager. And here's a white privilege thing for you right there, folks. She basically walks in with, a resume that nobody bothers to check. This, to some degree, is a product of its time. 
there was a, some certain assumption that if someone brought your resume to you, it was the truth. There were exceptions, but this was a thing that just happened. And the manager's like, oh, yeah, sure, great. How about assistant manager? You're a white lady and, and fairly attractive, and I don't <laughs> resume schmesume, assistant manager. Not only that, but, like, there are a couple of points where, where he, like, asks a certain qu- specific question about her resume, and she's like, unimportant. <laughs> where did you take all these business classes? So, look over there. A bird. <laughs> well, and here's what here's that first one of the first of these places where the transformation logic gets wonky because she starts to experience the potion wearing off at the tail end of the interview. She's like, uh, he's like, well, let me give you a tour. She goes, got to run to the bathroom, and she bolts. forgets. Yeah, she forgets the potion, and so she basically has this whole bloody transformation thing in an elevator, service elevator, that we then don't see what happens next. There's a jump to when she's back at the store on her first day as assistant manager working, but there's no like explanation of how she left the building covered in gore or the fact that at no point did the manager ever seem to look at her and say, so when you disappeared for yeah. hours... <laughs> After when I said, let's do a, yeah, let's do a tour of the store. And then you said, let me go to the bathroom. And you were gone for two and a half hours and came back in a different outfit. What was that all about? Right. The completely ignored. It just, uh, I had some female problems. Well, you know, uh, it's like, I don't give a shit. It's fine. See, that actually is a better hand wavium away than what we actually get here. And it's one of the few flaws with the episode is that, This doesn't just happen once. It happens several times where as cool as it is to watch her dealing with the fact that she's about to go to pieces rather bloodily and dramatically in a public place, which of course has got an element of danger. It also is a lot of, yes, but how did you do the thing? (laughs) (laughs) Get away. And it's like, and have nobody miss you or look for you. Right. So and did also, that, how did you covered in blood walk all the way back to somewhere where, like, did you have uh, some clothes put away somewhere? Like, how did all that happen? And the length of time that the potion lasts is somewhat inconsistent throughout mm-hmm. the episode. These are things that are not deal breakers to how good the rest of the episode is. These are definitely flaws in the storytelling, or at least in the edit. So Sally's like, okay, what is it that you want from me? What is this? Why is this happening to me? And he's like, oh, someday I'll ask you for a favor. And she's like, oh, great. That's never blown up in somebody's face before. And so he's like, no, no, it'll be fine. You'll be fine. Later, she meets Christina, which was really interesting in that she's kind of, Christina does that whole thing. She said to almost every other character, we are not so different, you and I. (laughs) It turns out that the favor that William wants is for Sally to dress up as a Wait, Sally. Ruby. No one in the show is named Sally. There is not a Sally in the show. Are you sure? Yes. Her name is Ruby. Okay. All right, fine. (laughs) Ruby is for Ruby to take a rock and put it in the police chief's desk. And she gets to the place where she's supposed to do this. And Christina is there. And she's like, what the fuck, Christina? Why am I here when you are here and could have done this? And she's like, no, it has to be somebody inconspicuous. They will know it's me if something happens. 
And she weaves this tale about how William was cast out and his rightful place of leadership was usurped and all this stuff. And if I hadn't figured out that Christina and William were the same person in episode one of this show, this would have been the moment where I'd be like, oh, well, William and Christina are obviously the same person. Well, the other thing is, is that this tale that she's weaving is because there's been this power struggle going on between the, the surviving cult members of the Sons of Adam. Yeah. And the sheriff, I guess he sort of assumed power over his lodge. Even though, even though he never was officially inducted. Right. With Braithwaite dead, there's this like power struggle going along with the different lodges. Who's going to be in charge? And William puts forth his own stuff and Christina and all these different things. But if you haven't figured out that they're the same person, spoiler alert for the episode, this whole power struggle is going on. What, it was the last episode, the episode before, where Christina mm-hmm. and the sheriff are very clearly on opposite sides of this. Yeah, There's definite animosity between the two. There's a great scene where William meets two of the sheriff's thugs and just wipes the floor with them. And he's like, excuse me, I have to go. He's all very proper. And this plays in when we do realize that the reveal that he is Christina, and we can talk about that more than it happened. Yeah. But there's something, again, we get into what Christina's doing to deal with the world that she inhabits and get power in it. Christina is very much using the characters that we are following, our main characters. The more you watch this, the more you realize she's moving them around on a chessboard. Yeah, She's the villain in their story because she's like, okay, fine. You need me to be the villain, whatever. I need you. She's doing her own thing. (laughs) And her villainy towards Atticus and... Letty uh, is just basically incidental to the well, and, fact that she's got something else going on. And to some degree, she's not actively being a villain to them. She's being an antagonist to a degree, mm-hmm. but she's not actively doing anything to harm them. This, of course, does not make her on their side. Right. But she's not actively going out of her way to do them harm. She's been, to some degree, helpful. Which, of course, just is just going to make it all worse. Right. <laughs> Helpful or harmful to them is not anywhere in her thinking of the way right. that, you know, what's happening. She literally needs them for whatever it is that she is doing and what consequences that has on their lives is incidental. She offered Atticus a chance to be part of it. He said no. And so she's going to do it anyway. And I guess you're just coming along for the ride for whatever reason. And yet, there's a certain amount of, I'm not going to say affection, that William has for Ruby, but he doesn't actively treat her like a pawn mm-hmm. in their interactions. He's not loving or cuddly, or he doesn't you know, give any kind of illusions about what their relationship is. He makes it very clear from the start. Um, I had this experiment I wanted to do. You seemed like a good candidate for it. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> and, but at the same time, he seems to actively be enjoying playing the role. When she's at work, she meets the other girls on the staff. They see him, and he sort of clearly seems to enjoy playing up the role of the, of the arm candy. But again, you have to remember, William is Christina, and so he knows from his other life, from his other personality, what kind of cachet that would give mm-hmm. Hillary 
to have this very handsome devoted beau for her people to see. Mm -hmm. But this also plays into the scenes where she gets to know what it's like to actually work at this place she wanted to work at. Mm -hmm. And for the experience of the young black woman who is already working there, the lady who got the job that she wanted, it's pretty clear that she was hired not because she comes with a lot of skills. Ruby is eminently more qualified in terms of education than Mm -hmm. this young lady is. But this young lady fits a certain attractiveness profile, really. Mm-hmm. It seems to be they hired her for the way she looks. Right. And this bothers Ruby. She looks at this young lady and sees someone who, if she messes it up, she messes up this job, she's not just messing it up for her. Right. She's messing it up for every other black woman who applies. And they're already dealing with the fact that the white women on the staff, the casual racism that's baked into this time of America, but also this sort of just assumption that they can do whatever they want. You know, the, on their break, they're wearing clothes that are, you know, they're there, we can go back to work, but let's try on shoes instead. <laughs> Tamara comes running up when she's supposed to be manning a counter and she says, sorry, so-and-so needed her dressing room cleaned and so-and-so needed this. And they're taking advantage of her just as casually as they're doing any of, any of the other racist stuff that they would normally be doing. Oh, my dressing room is dirty. I need a black person. Tamara! Yeah. Exactly. We glossed over a very important scene uh, that we need to not gloss over. When, when Ruby is leaving the stone in the sheriff's office. She basically... Oh, right. She has to <laughs> oh, hide. God. She yeah. has to hide while she's in there because the sheriff comes... Is, she hears the sheriff getting ready to come into the room. And so she hides in the closet. And this turns out to be not an empty space. There's somebody else in the closet already hanging from the ceiling with his tongue cut out and clearly not doing well, having a bad day. And, of course, he's would like to bring this up to her by making noise. She's like, shut up! She's covering his mouth. And she can see through the slats and see the sheriff and two of his lackeys. And what noise they're hearing from the closet, they just brush off as the guy who's in it, which is good for her. But I think at one point the, sh- the sheriff even says, "Like you'd be making noise too if you got your if you didn't have a tongue or something like that." Well, and they're also seem to imply that they're going to get answers out of him whether he's alive or dead. Which, mm. of course, necromancy, yay! Yeah. Um, but the sheriff starts. You know, he's talking about how he's you know, he's sweating through his clothes and he needs to change his shirt. And he pulls off his shirt, and there's a whole lot of black skin. Yeah. Well, the first time I saw it, I was like, "Is that a tattoo?" Yeah, I had to stop and rewind because I thought it was a tattoo. And it's not. It's it's his skin underneath his shirt is a mixture of white and black skin. And it's like... Like okay, Frankenstein's is- monster on. So it, it leaves kind of the question is, what happens here? And I'm sure we're going to get an answer, but it's really... It's a really strange thing to see. And it also raises a lot of interesting questions because certainly he's not any less racist than any other uh, of the people that we've seen in power in the show. So yeah, there's some questions to be answered there. And... Ruby gets away. Everything's fine. <laughs> it didn't matter how. Same yeah, as... Well, same as again... <laughs> when, same Ruby, as Ruby, 
we don't have money to shoot that. Let's move on. Look, this entire show establishes that Ruby is very, very good at leaving places. Okay. There's no question that Ruby's leaving the scene skills are top notch. Ruby can leave a scene. This is my new headcanon is that she's just got mad leaving skills. Walks out of room with her middle finger up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of here. I'm getting out. Finally, uh, Ruby convinces Tamara by just saying she's going to do it to take everybody down to the South side as kind of a sightseeing expedition. Yeah. Go, go see how the poor people live. And while she's there, like all of her little, all the girls who work at the, at the store are having a great time, except for Tamara, of course. Tamara's miserable. They're dancing with black dudes, and the manager is there doing shit. So we finally get to see what we're, we're being hinted at from the manager. Right? Yeah. He's out to bang his employees. Because and- earlier he kind of like lingers too long with a Hillary hug. And then when she asks the other girls if they've ever been fresh, they all stop and like look at each other before like changing the subject. Ruby sees him attack Tamara in an alley. While Ruby's skin is coming off. He's not subtle. I mean, this is just for a guy who puts on this front of being this perfectly family man and, and businessman and all these things. His scene with Tamara, you hear it more than you see it. And it's just, just awful. <laughs> He's just awful. Yeah, he is. He gets his comeuppance, and that's good. And after his, the, the interrupted attempted rape of Tamara, right? Yeah. Well, Tamara storms away. She, she slaps him and storms away. They've pushed her around enough this episode. I'm, I'm pretty sure that... Isn't, isn't Ruby going through another transmu- transmutation at this yes, point? Yes, at that yeah. time, yes. She somehow gets home and, <laughs> and then goes back to work the next day. And with quits. A, with a plan. Yes, with a plan. <laughs> so she tells the manager that she can't work there anymore because... Before you go any further, I just want to say that this moment in general was mentioned in the last episode that was released which was episode three one is out right now well in episode one when we're talking about that we talk about what's going to happen with some spike heels this is true this is true spike heels make an an important return (laughs) i believe dustin you called this so please continue oh I I have no recollection of that. We originally talked about how Letty was probably going to do some serious damage to somebody with a spike heel. And while it's not Letty, Rose does a pretty good, uh, uh, has her own plans for a spiked heel here. And uh, she succeeds in said plans. She she seduces the manager into being tied up and have his... Yeah, the way she does it is perfect. Neck. Mm. Gets him on his hands and knees, and he's all tied up, and then pushes him down, and then uses her spiked heel to anally penetrate him. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure she's even aiming. She either has amazing aim, or she's doing severe. She's doing all kinds of damage down there. Well, obviously, that's the point. Yeah, is all kinds of damage. Oh, while she's doing this. The Hillary skin is fluffing off. Yeah. So here's your situation. You're a terrible human being. And you, uh, you're in a position of power. It's working out pretty well for you. You try and make moves on a subordinate. Uh, she doesn't take it well. The next day, 
you come to work, you know you're going to fire her because you can and there's nothing she can do about it. But then the woman that you think is just amazing responds to your affection and engages you in a way which is exciting and dangerous and a little bit risque and... So naughty. Mm. Suddenly, (laughs) it all goes wrong (laughs) in every conceivable way. This is why I make sure when people tie me to, I can can either break it or get out of it because that... Well, that's why you you should never be tied up by anyone who you don't trust. Well, let's not be hasty. Well, he doesn't even go, try even go for a safe word here. And this is, a, this is always a mistake. Okay, first of all, establish your boundaries. Second of all, make sure there is a safe word. Third, make sure that you can be released from the bindings on your own power if necessary. And third, uh, don't be a racist asshole. All right. Because this will probably get you anally violated in a particularly unpleasant manner. And she wanted to do this to him because she wanted him to know that a black woman did this to him. This all would have backfired if he wasn't racist, just a sexual predator. But he's also racist, so it worked out. She says that to him after all of this falls yeah, off. You guys are looking at me like I'm insane. You don't my know. Complete, complete sideways here thing. Uh, my, my ex-girlfriend, Kamala, her best friend was Susan, the world's tiniest lesbian. Oh, the world's tiniest lesbian. Uh, Susan was about four foot eleven. I'm sure she still is about four foot eleven, um, and she's just—I mean, perfect. Title or is that just what you call her? Perfectly scaled. I mean, she's just perfectly. She's she's a perfect scale. Yeah, at, short. Well, she's short. Yeah, beautiful woman. And that was just the running gag: is that Susan wears the world's. You put her in her pocket. You carry her around on your shoulder. You'd lose her in a bar. And she. She's the, the one who knows whose junk smells terrible. Pretty much. And the <laughs> first time I went over to her house, she was giving us giving me the tour. And she's like, and here's the bedroom. And above her bed, she had mounted two handles right above the top of the bed frame. Mm -hmm. I looked at those and she looked at me and she saw that I was looking at him. She goes, she goes, we got to have something to hold on to. (laughs) And I was like, okay, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) That's true. Netflix can get adventurous in bed. So anyway, this was, this was prior to Netflix. You had to do, you had to do your chilling on your own schedule. Oh. So Ruby goes back to William's house and Christina comes walking in and Ruby is like done with all of this whole situation. That comes she out is, of mystery basement too. She just yeah. popped right out. All right. Yeah. There's a mystery basement, but that is so like secondary to any of the stuff that's been happening this episode. I think it's just a reason for her to be like, why am I, why me? It was a device. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, cause nothing is just a throwaway in the show. I'm sure we'll come back to the mystery basement at some point. I'm sure. But really what we were here is for the payoff of, uh, Christina's like, I have to go. And, uh, our, and it's the other way around. It sees William coming out of the basement. Yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, and so she's like, you've got to tell me. You've got to tell me what's going on. What is all of this about? You have got to explain it to me. And he's like, no, no, i got to go. Can't, can't, can't do all that. <laughs> and then he falls to the ground and begins to slough off skin. And who should emerge from William's body? But Christina. <laughs> and Ruby is just like, you've been Christina this whole time? <laughs> She's, she's barely flummoxed at it. 
Well, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> she's seen some shit. <laughs> Living Beyond Surprise is, is going to be where she's at for a while, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This and is... that's really the end of A-plot. That's the end of A-plot, but there's... just there's... got to the end. I can't believe it took us this long just to get to the end of A-plot. A-plot well, was the, a big no. plot. The A-plot is a big chunk of the episode, though. I don't and think this I... was A-plot, though. This was, for me, this wasn't A-plot. Really? You think the other part was A-plot? Yeah, okay. I think, I think uh, what's-his-name's dad's story was absolutely outstanding this episode. This was an well, amazing thing that, that, to me, looks like if 10 years ago, this would have been fucking television history make, being made, you know? It was such a good, good stuff, his whole arc. Oh... Uh... I have yeah. a lot of problems with this. Just... I was wanting to. I was wanting to uh, to discuss it and and hear your uh, your perspective. Right. The only trope older than bury your gaze is the abusive homosexual villain. Is the guy who is a homophobe and and beats up gay people because he doesn't want to admit that he's gay. Right. Or the, you know, look at American Beauty, the man who's so terrified of of his own feelings that he would rather murder someone than admit that he has gay tendencies. Right. And that is what we're getting here. If that's the story that we're getting, I'm not here for it. I think that it's cheap. There's two branches here. One is... If that's the story we're getting, that's one branch. Yeah. The other branch is what they seem to have been setting us up for to some degree before, which is that Montrose is a complex character who we are being asked to sympathize with and dislike at the same time in the, pre- in the previous episodes. I'm not talking about yeah. what we learned in this episode. What we really haven't gotten before, though, Dustin... Is uh, and I agree with you. It's it's a pretty common trope. This whole episode is about. Uh, I'm going to pronounce this word wrong. The cr- chrysalis. Yeah, the the coming out of the the, yeah. the being born out of another form. Right. Right. And um, um, that's the same thing that happens to Montrose too. At the end, he uh, he has his. I really hate that I have to do this with you because I don't want this to be me. And then he surrenders to it. And that's the, that was the moment that I was like, this show is amazing because you, you never see someone have to do that battle with their, with their self internally and then have the right side of it win. Well, that, okay. I can, I can get behind that with the exception of, I need there to be more. I mean, we've got... He's got to come out to his family. Six now. episodes left? How many? So, there's... Well, there's uh, four episodes after the one that, that just dropped tonight. So Yeah. Uh, so, there, there's there's five more episodes from we this episode done. we're talking about. Okay. So, there's five more episodes. All is not forgiven for me. Montrose has been more of a villain... Like, he's killed people, he's burned things, he's hidden information. Yeah, 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 he's a, he's you know, a, he's a prick. The, so the now fact he's... that, you know, he has decided to be okay with with one aspect of who he is does not, for me, forgive him. No, but for... he's... Oh, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be forgiving the character in any event, because up until this point, what has made the character interesting 
is that he's been doing a lot of things that are objectively bad, including murder, but his goal has been means and ends, right? Mm -hmm. The means or the end is to protect his son from from all these things. All this shit from day one. His son, who is not interested in being protected, by the way, but that's not the point. He wants to protect his son. He's done a terrible job of protecting his son his entire life. In fact, he used to beat his son on the regular. Right. But now at this point, he's quote unquote, trying to do the right thing. His methods of doing it are just as good as trying to raise someone to be a good person by beating the shit out of them on a regular basis, which means, you know, he's burning things and killing people and things like that. But what makes the character interesting and what has made, we talked about this last time, is that you can see that he's legitimately trying to do what he feels is best to save someone, even though the way he's doing it is terrible. It makes the character interesting. And like Dustin talked about last week, you know, some of this comes out of this actor who we've seen play this kind of complicated role before. There's a reason that you know, Michael K. Williams was cast in this role because you can believe that he is going to be he gives the kind of depth to this really dark character that you've had these moments of sympathy for him. Yeah. And then you have a scene like this. And as I'm watching, so, so for the folk, you know, clearly we are assuming you folks have seen the show, but when he goes over to the, the, he goes over to Sammy's and cause Sammy's the guy who owns the bar. Um, and we establish that Sammy's gay fairly early on in the show. And there's been hints that Montrose and Sammy, people have, you know, there have been people talking about it. People have been implying they have a, a relationship. And so it is, on one hand, a fairly brutal sex scene. That is physically impossible. By the way, there would not be a lot of pleasure in that sex scene. There would be a lot of screaming. And what are you trying to do to me? And maybe a lot of blood and maybe even some poop. It was not a good sex scene. I did not appreciate it. Just like the other sex scenes we've seen in this show, it's shot like, uh, but there's a certain amount of glamour to these sex scenes. They're artistically shot. They're artistically edited. They're shot in a way which is supposed to imply passion of a kind without being your standard sex scenes, right? So when we've seen Atticus and, and Letty have sex, it's been a mixture of both the male and female gaze, right? So right. it's not just the standard standard model here. There's a there's a shortness to them. There's an intensity to them that implies passion. If, as, as an editor, you look at this sort of thing and you judge how this stuff is going to play out. Right. This, this scene is shot essentially the same way and there was a for me as someone watching it there's a fair amount of anger in this scene right right but there's also these like brief seconds where where sammy is trying to make this an intimate thing and montrose is pulling back and there's two or three times where montrose starts to lean into that and then pulls himself back and so there's this attempt to show montrose not just doing this as a thing he has to do, quote unquote, right? There's, a, there, there's emotion here. And this plays out later in the episode when, when we get to him just being accepted in this group of people and allowing himself to relax and embrace the world around him. It's a violent sex scene. And there's just something about it that um, it, it, it works and it doesn't for me. And, and uh, Sammy, is that, that's his name, Sam? Yeah. 
Sam Sam doesn't even get a like a little break to recover before he gets his payback, you know. Because it's well, that's that scene. All those things, the whole thing. Stop the blowy. They stop at the blowy. Right, and I'm sure that all those things that Tim just said are are valid or whatever. But you know, I think you have to. Whatever. Good job, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, because you get a you get a Letty add his sex scene, and I totally got what he was saying about that the the urgency, the quickness, the 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 shot. It's not shot like you had said something about last week, Curtis. the The sex scenes are not shot for titillation on this show. Right, they're not supposed to be little mini porno scenes. They're sex scenes in the show because it's an adult show, and sometimes adults have sex. And you just have to accept the fact that that's a fact of life. Mm-hmm. There is a, a very strong element of that with the straight sex scenes. But this being a gay sex scene, it lo- immediately, immediately lost me on the pushing him over and spitting in the hand. I was like, this is never going to work. Are we raping people now? Like, this is not supposed to be like, oh, I'm giving in to my bestial urges. If this happened to, it would be like, the the conversation would not be like, oh, yeah, whatever. It would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You need to stop right now. You need to stop right now. I had burritos for lunch. <laughs> you know, there's a great uh, 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 Jim Jeffries Jim Jeffries says he one he tells a story about the time he talked his wife into anal, and that's when he realized that uh, you can't smell porn. Right. Well, and not only that, but there is so there's so much preparation that goes into that kind of to into anal sex that what is just like you've got to call the a day in advance and be like hey i'm thinking about this how do you feel about this oh okay well let me start prepping my life now <laughs> and you know if you're going to do a really good really adult series you cannot make dumb bullshit mistakes like this i'm not happy with this sex scene i didn't like it because it did not show to me the respect that it has shown every other character's sex scene on the show. Because it did not hit any of those reality moments. I wonder how much they were trying to show that the violent nature of Montrose, because he's a violent man, I mean, he just, he just is, how that may be at some part of the relationship he has with Sammy, because there are some people who like violence and pain. And if that's what they're trying to do, I think the scene might make a little more sense with what we saw, but we have not had that establishment between their, in their relationship before this though. Right. If that's what they were trying to go for, we haven't been prepped for it properly. So a whole lot of prepping that just didn't happen here for the, for the audience or for, or for Sammy. There's a, there's a whole room full of people. Not one gay person in there was like, Hey, this isn't particularly, I mean, I get suspension of disbelief and everything and all the straight people are going to accept this, but man, no, (laughs) Well, that's that's making the assumption that that anyone on the production staff that would have had the power to make that kind of decision is a gay person. 
Or a well, I would think the actors would have some say in, in it too. Like a question to ask the director is this, um, does this happen? So here's the issue with a scene like this or any sex scene or any scene trying to define a relationship is what makes it to the screen is what we talk about, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about what we see versus what the intent of the people, the filmmaker or the TV producer, or whoever, and what the script originally said, and like, et cetera, et cetera. This is the first episode where we've seen anything other than this sort of mocking relationship between Sammy and Montrose. Every time we've seen Sammy before, there's been no, like, I secretly love Montrose stares. It's, he's been snarky and vaguely unpleasant, mm. very mocking to Atticus. So this scene is very abrupt. And the sex scene that follows is pretty much for when he opens the door. This is all super abrupt. We've had no prep, no, mm-hmm. no establishment of what these guys' relationship is. And then we get this sort of expansion on that as, as it plays out because we see Montrose and Sammy and the drag show and the club and all these things where Montrose is emerging from this shell of being this tough, strong black man in the situation that he's in. And then we see him being embraced by the community and being embraced by these friends and, and allowing himself to be accepted. But we don't get enough information about his and Sammy's relationship at this point yeah. to make this scene anything more than not only painful to experience on the character side, but painful to watch. Even if this were like a thing that people did, it's just maintenance sex and it's, that's, yeah, it's not fun. Right. So anyway, uh, Montrose and Sammy go to his drag sisters and get ready for a ball. And in the drag queens is Shangela, who is a pretty famous drag performer oh. who was in A Star is Born this last year. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, another drag queen whose name I can't remember at the time, at this moment, and I don't want to have to look it up. Like you said, they go to the club. Montrose seems really standoffish, but the music enters him, and he finally kind of gives in to himself and kind of is embraced, like you said, embraced by this community and well, embraced th- by Sammy and himself i think he's he's in so much pain from having just lost his son out of his stupid and awkward attempts to protect his son from evil dangers from beyond our comprehension Mm -hmm. he's lost him and that puts him in a special kind of pain and i think right or wrong this is how he's trying to deal with that he's trying to have a family yeah and, and this is where he gets one I wonder how that will affect his actual family once that becomes known. Well, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'm very interested to see where we're going from here. Well, sure. Um, Especially considering that in the 1950s and we still see it today, there are people who don't want to admit that they're gay. Um, They don't want to admit it to themselves or to their families. And this isn't limited to gay people. There are people who hate themselves for who they are, whatever they are, straight, gay, what any ethnic group or religious group, there's people who just, I mean, they hate themselves for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And you could argue very strongly that the subtext, this is good and bad because subtext ends up becoming tropey. The subtext that we've seen so far implies that Montrose has been aware of how he feels probably his well, whole life. 
Treat said last episode, remember? He said, isn't it funny how your dad is so close with Sammy? Bye! Yeah. The anger that, and this is where we get into tropes again, the anger that Montrose has shown his whole life, his tendency to lash out in violence. You know, you see this stuff in abusive relationships where people are struggling with their own pain and their own abuse and things like that, where they lash out at other people. They're not being true to themselves. They're not getting the help they need, except there's lots of different reasons why people do this. Sometimes they're just bad. Mm -hmm. What we've seen so far seems to imply that a lot of his anger comes from the fact that he's been hiding this from everyone around him his whole life, which is not an excuse. No. But that seems to be the subtext, and at least to me. Like we said before, Montrose as a character is very complex and very compelling, and there's a lot of things going on in this story with his character, and he's like, at best, third lead. So Mm -hmm. that's really good, and I like that. And I'm very interested to see what we're going to discover next, where we're going after this. I share your concern, though, that we may end up going down a path where it's not dealt with enough Mm -hmm. and that it ends up being very much a violent, closeted gay person trope. Yeah. The self-hating gay thing that, yes, I mean, there's a reason it's a trope. It's a real thing, but it's, yeah. With the queer kid, I'm I'm not thrilled to see that, let alone, you know, my friends who... And a podcast partner. Exactly. Damn it. Like, yeah, I'm going to be, I, I just, I just have this. I just see in Sammy getting killed in an episode or two, the whole idea of this relationship just going downhill, going south real fast. Yeah. We'll just have to see what happens, but it's not, makes me nervous for the characters. Um, now the reason that he even ended up over at Sammy's, the reason he was, well, not the only reason, but one of the reasons he ends up over at Sammy's is because he got his ass kicked by Atticus mm-hmm. and the episode, uh, very early on, we get Atticus realizing what Montrose has done with Yahima disappearing and Atticus saying, Oh, she, she's gone. She left. And Atticus, no, he doesn't say uh, she left. He says she's gone. And poor Letty, she's like, well, I guess she was kind of a prisoner. We couldn't keep her and make her stay. (laughs) But Atticus knows the minute that Montrose says she's gone, knows exactly what he means. I killed her. And he flies into a rage and just starts beating Montrose brutally. I wouldn't have survived that beating. Uh, it, it was it was pretty, I mean, it's extremely violent. And it plays out. I mean, there's there's a conversation that Atticus and, and Letty have where she says, you're scaring me. One of the best subtle moments of this show, of this particular episode, was when he goes running down into the dark room to start looking to see if there's pictures of the scroll that, Ma- oh, he, not only did he kill Yasima, but he burned the scroll that, right. of her translations. And so when Atticus is finally pulled off of Montrose, he runs down to the to see if Letty had taken any pictures of them, of the of the scroll before it was destroyed. And when she follows him, when she gets down to the basement, she has her baseball bat. Yeah. And that was really like when it when it scrolled across her and you see that she's got that baseball bat on her side, you go, oh, shit, she's like, he's messing up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's 
The look on her face, the grip she's got on that bat, there is no question what she is prepared to do. Mm-hmm. And he sees her. He sees the bat. He sees the look on her face. And when they talk about it later, he's like, I, I never thought I would be my father. I never thought I would have that violence. I never thought I would have that, that level of anger. Goes, mm-hmm. And I found it in the war. It is there. It is real. And she's like, yeah, you know, that's bad. You're scaring me very badly right now. And I, yeah. I mean, this, is, this is not good. And the plot here, the majority, for all the fact that what, what's going on is them finding, you know, she did take photos of the scroll and he does spend time trying to translate them. And they come up with a translation that causes him to call South Korea again and talk to this person that he had the relationship while he was there out, out of, of fear, you know, demanding to know who she, what, what she is. But the, what's really happening here is that we're seeing these two actually do something they haven't done yet. They've gone through all these things together. They've started this relationship, which is very intense, full of horror and monsters and, and moments of sex. But they've never actually sat down and talked for any length of period of time about who they are at this point mm-hmm. in their lives. Her trying to pray mm-hmm. because... That's what she feels she ought to do, but she doesn't feel that anymore. It's how she was raised, but she doesn't have that faith. Him trying to deal with the fact that he has so much anger and he mm-hmm. has so much rage. And when he applies it, he could easily kill somebody. You know, we've already seen him pull a gun on Christina, mm-hmm. justified or not. He was willing to put himself in a position where he walked in and shot a white person in the world that he lives in. Right. And he has that same dream, that vision of his ancestor escaping from Mm. the Braithwaite mansion. And she stops at the door and he stops and it appears she's trying to tell him something, but he can't make out what it is. And then he's consumed by the flames. Right. Which is very much a, you know, I think a a foreshadowing, like, you need to make some decisions about your life. He needs to understand what's going on outside and inside, or he's going to burn, one way or the other. So, there's a lot going on in this episode. They punched a whole bunch of stuff in here. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They could have easily done three episodes out of this thing, man. It was bonkers. Well, I think that our questions about Montrose and Sammy might have actually been better resolved if they'd given more time to this. It's an interesting mix of tone because in many ways, despite the fact it starts off the most violent, the Atticus and Letty section moves fairly slowly. They moved just enough pieces in that particular part of the chessboard along to where we wouldn't be like, did we just waste an entire episode with Ruby and Montrose? (laughs) 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 one of the things that the book really does is it shifts the focus character from chapter to chapter and i think the tv show while making atticus and letty our primary leads is trying to give weight to ruby and montrose and and the other whatever other secondary characters they they do it with theoretically uh hippolyta her and george's daughter will have an episode, a focus episode, if they stick even fairly close to some of the book model. There's, it's a little, it's a little less seamless here because we're, they're very much leaning into Atticus and Letty being the main characters. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think we're, I, I didn't get a sense of feeling like we were wasting time with them because it, it all fits into the larger, it fits right. into the larger we're, picture. Yeah. Overall, I enjoyed this episode and the performances really made it everything. Yeah. I really enjoyed the Ruby parts and I really enjoyed the Atticus and Letty part. And there were good things about the Montrose part, but I just am so like my concern over it, over the way that it will be handled. Mm -hmm. Just that's what I'm having the problem with really. Well, and it'll be very interesting to see what they do with it for the very simple fact that 1950s America, outside of a sliver of the populace at the time, this was not something you discussed with your family. Mm-hmm. The conversation that we, as people that live in the world we live in now, would almost expect where the father comes to his son and say, this is who I am, and, and you know... I've dealt with all this my whole life, and this is where the anger comes from. You can see that scene playing out in the modern context, right? Mm -hmm. But it's the 1950s. That scene does not play out that way then. Because it it would be perfectly historically accurate for Montrose to never tell Atticus. Yeah. And for Atticus to just sit there and go, I'm not ever going to talk to my father again because my father's awful. Atticus is going to find out, and then it's going to lead to more bullshit between the two of those two. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be straight with you guys. I'm super glad that uh, fella came out, and he's got kind of a kind of an extended family now with the with the, the cross dressing gay family. Great. Um, I kind of don't give a shit about Atticus and his dad. Mm. <laughs> I kind of don't care. Uh, little, yeah, yeah little, I get it. You guys don't get along. We've been pounding. You've been pounding this into me for the and last. Oh my gosh! How many times do we got to do a show about a dude with daddy issues? <laughs> well, like and, fathers and, and sons are complicated. We get it. Well, interestingly enough, uh, in the book, while they have the same history, the same history of violence between the two of them. There's all kinds of moments where they clash throughout the book. It's just the nature of their relationship. That's just who they are. And it just comes up and then they talk about how they fight all the time and then they move on to the next part of the story. Montrose does not get this level of development in the book. And certainly this particular plot line is that doesn't exist in the book at all. It's very interesting what they've done with it. Again, well, we can come back. We can come back to talk about the differences in the book later, but that's a whole other thing. All right. So our oh, next... God. This was not nearly the slog that last week's uh, podcast was. I don't know what was going on with us last week. We barely made it out of that alive. Well, we, we wanted to talk about this week more. Yeah. Well, should we should it should be very interesting to see what we what comes up with the next episode, which takes us back to Korea and Atticus's experiences there, and the mis perhaps an answer to the mystery of the girl, the lady on the phone line that he's called now several times, um, who has been very cryptic and a little bit ominous. We'll have to see how that plays out. Um, also, by the way, not a sequence that's in the book at all, but we will um, we'll see what happens with that. I guess you've been listening to uh, Zompocalypse Now, the the one with uh, Tim, Curtis, and Dustin, not one of the 13 others that are spelled differently. There are others? Oh, yes. <laughs> I had a very difficult time finding our own podcast the other day. 
Wow. On just on Google? Yeah, we need to work that out. Maybe sue some people. You guys won't feel like suing some people? <laughs> oh, no, great. thanks. <laughs> Who has the time to sue people? That's true. That's I true. have to create a complicated father-son relationship. <laughs> Um, you have you you have a son, so you already have a complicated father son relationship. <laughs> you need to nurture that complicated and try to feed it whenever you can. Yeah. When if 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 you if you don't have a complicated father son relationship, you're not do it. You're you're not fathering right. <laughs> All right. So everybody, like call Curtis on the telephone when you gave this episode. He gave you his phone number earlier. Yep. So call Curtis on the telephone. Also, you can find Tim and I, well, more me than Tim, on uh, on Twitter. I'm at the Night Dusto. Uh, Curtis is Creepy Curtis. And, creepy uh, underscore Curtis. Oh, right. Yeah. And, uh, and Tim is Timothy Harvey. So, you know, poke us on the internet and say hello. You, I, I want to talk to you. I don't want you to know my number or where I am. Read my read my tweets that will get me fired from jobs later in life. Yeah. That's what the internet is for. It's coming back <laughs> to haunt you at your next job interview. <laughs> All right, folks. We appreciate you listening to the show. We hope that you enjoyed listening to us talk about Lovecraft Country. And we'll do this again uh, on our next episode. And we hope you'll join us for that. Uh, Curtis, thank you. Thank you, Tim. Dustin, thank you. Thank you, Tim. And again, folks, thank you for listening. We'll do this again on our next episode of Zompocalypse Now. Zompocalypse Now is produced and recorded by Timothy Harvey, Dustin Adair, and Curtis Smith for Just Some Guy Productions. All rights reserved. <laughs>